It's good to be here with all of you this morning. If you're visiting with us or watching online and don't know who I am, my name's Austin Peace. I am the youth minister and worship minister here. I typically lead songs, but this morning, James and Deb, his wife, are in Israel for the next few weeks, so James asked me to preach, so you get to listen to the youth minister preach for the next couple Sundays, so get, I'm very excited to be able to do that for all of you today. I hope all of y'all have had a great spring break. March Madness is on. I hope all of y'all's brackets are winning and doing all of those things. I got to cap my spring break off yesterday by playing paintball with some of our college-aged guys and a few of our youth group students. And so if you see me limping around up here, we had a few of those guys convince me to run the gauntlet, which is where you just sprint and they shoot you with, while you have no gun on you. So you just run and just get shot. Life of a youth minister, I guess. So if you see me limping up here, that's why. I also want to take a second to just reiterate, thank you to Dale and Connie Felder for being with us this morning. If you're in our adult Bible class today, Dale is from South Texas, from the Far Church of Christ, and he is, they, they are in charge of an awesome ministry down there. They've planted so many churches over the years. They, they do Magi boxes. They deliver food to the community. They do home repairs, and they are doing an awesome work down there. The youth group actually got, to, got a chance to go down there this summer to work with that ministry that they do in South Texas and Mexico. And it was, I just want to tell you, God is good. God is doing awesome things down there in South Texas and at the border and down into Mexico. And it's all thanks to, to awesome people like Dale and Connie who do those types of things and just Dale's pointing at God, and I agree. God, God is good. God is working down there in the valley, and I'm glad that we get to have an opportunity with our youth group to be able to go down there, and I'm looking forward to hopefully our church having more opportunities to join with this ministry in the future as well. So for the next couple of weeks, this Sunday and next, I want to take a look at what makes Jesus such a compelling story Teller. You know, I've been thinking about a lot about what I consume in my life. You know, the things that I allow to fill up my time, the things that I allow to fill up my soul. And you know, a lot of the times we fixate on the things that our children are consuming, the things that our children consume. But a lot of the times for us, you know, we reach the age 20 and we all of a sudden think that we can just fill ourselves up with whatever because we're kind of immune to other things. And so what I want us to do for the next couple of things, I want to challenge all of you, especially this morning, to not only give primacy back to the life of Jesus over the next couple of weeks, but to give primacy back to the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus. You know, if, if you've studied the Bible, if you get to see the Bible, a lot of the ways that Jesus teaches is through these subversive narrative stories that he tells. You know, we call it the, they're little Hebrew Aramaic stories. And they're, they're, if we transliterate that, the Hebrew word for that is mashal. We call them parables, right? We call them parables. And the really interesting thing about Jesus is he doesn't invent the parable. He simply perfects the parable. All throughout the Old Testament, surprisingly, I was, I, I was a little surprised when I started thinking about this and, and studying this. You know, there are parables throughout the Old Testament. There are parables all throughout the Old Testament. One of the best known parables in the Old Testament is in, sec is in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan the prophet goes to confront King David after he breaks seven of the Ten Commandments in one night with the Bathsheba incident, something, a story that most of us probably know. And so we get to see Nathan go to King David and confront him. And Nathan doesn't just walk up to him with a list and say, I know what you've done. He doesn't walk up to him with video evidence and say, here, I saw what you did last night. That's not what he did at all. 
you know, he walks in and he tells David a story. He tells him a riddle, right? You know, this, this story that he tells him is all about this rich man who takes advantage of this poor man. You know, he takes his, his lamb because he has a visitor coming into town and he doesn't want to use something from his own flock. So this rich man takes advantage of a poor man. And as Nathan is telling the story, we get to see David just get angrier and angrier and angrier. And at the end, he's just got this righteous fury demanding that the rich man pay for the crimes that he's committed against this poor man. And Nathan turns it all around on him and says, you're the rich man. You're the rich man. You know, Nathan, he uses the story to draw David in. He uses the story to draw David in, to use his imagination just to see how bad the things that he had done were. And it convicts David. We get to see how convicted David becomes. And so Nathan, in this, in this incident, uses this parable to do this. So when you think about parables, I want you to think about it in terms of this phrase. You know, there's subversive stories that Jesus tells to wake us up, to get our attention, and to speak to us. One of the things that I think Jesus understood is he knew that we have an innate, basic, almost animal-like desire for stories. You know, if we look at thousands of years ago and even today, you know, the thing that people love are stories. You know, when you put your kids to bed at night, you read them a story. You know, we, when you go out to dinner and lunch, you tell stories to one another. You know, the Bible, this book that we have right here today, this wouldn't be in our hands today if it weren't for people telling stories and passing along these things um, via, via stories and, and, and sharing those things with, with generation after generation. And Jesus knew that. You know, he, he uses this to, to his advantage. So often in church, we look at the stories about Jesus. We look at the stories about Jesus. But what I want to do for the next couple of weeks is look at stories that actually come from Jesus' own mouth. Something we don't realize is we actually have access to the greatest spiritual teachings of all time. The greatest. I mean, from the greatest spiritual teacher of all time. You know, you look at all the best storytellers in all of the world. You know, you think of Einstein. You think of people like Buddha, like Bahala. They don't even compare to this teacher. And we have access to these teachings. We have access to these spiritual teachings that come from Jesus. And, you know, Jesus understood this about humans. If you want to change somebody's mind, you know, we teach them. If you want to change someone's behavior, you model it. And if you want to change someone's heart, you have to grab their imagination. Something to note is that Jesus' original audience, they, they were illiterate. You know, they couldn't read, they couldn't write. And so what Jesus does is he, he takes this very important part of this society, this entertainment part of society, and he infuses these spiritual truths about the kingdom of God into these stories, into these stories to convict people, to show them what they're missing out on. You know, he wants to give, and the really interesting thing about this is, you know, if we look all but two times in all of the Gospels, does Jesus explain what these stories are about? You know, he wants these people to go and chew on this. They, he wants them to take it home, think about it. Take it to the breakfast table. Take it to their children to think about what Jesus is actually talking about. He doesn't typically explain himself very often. You know, one scholar says that, that says it like this. He says that the parable for the early listeners in the first century was an earthquake opening up the ground at your feet. They were earth, it's, the parable is an earthquake opening up the ground 
at your feet. It's something that should shock you, something that should make you think, something that should open up your entire world. And so today I want to share with you one of my favorite parables. It's something that is actually the very first parable that I actually really had a chance to dig deep into and sink my teeth in, something that I was able to study when I was in college. And just, it's really changed how I view the rest of Jesus's parables. It's really changed how I look at these parables. So we're going to be in Matthew 25, 14 through 30 this morning. Matthew 25, 14 through 30 this morning. I know a lot of the times we have the verse up on the screen, but when we're looking at stories like this, I think it's really important for us to actually interact with the text itself. Otherwise, I'm just telling you a story that you don't actually know. So if you have a paper Bible with you, if you have a phone, if you have one of those, go ahead and open it up. If you have neither of those things, reach into the pew back and just grab a Bible out of there and turn to Matthew 25, 14 through 30. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to read the parable out of the Bible. I'm going to try to tell it to you in just my basic understanding. I'm going to maybe use a few words that might differ from your translations and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to, you can ch- feel free to check me afterwards if, if I get something wrong. But I'm just going to do my best to share with you this parable and what Jesus is trying to say. So in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, we get to see this very, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like this. We get to see that there's this rich, powerful man, this very affluent man. Got lots of money, got lots of power. And he's got at least three employees that he trusts with all his, with, with, he's got three employees that he trusts. And so what this guy says, this, this master comes up to his three employees and he says, hey guys, uh, I'm going on a trip. I don't know when I'm going to be back. And I'm going to give y'all something a gift that's very lavish. It's going to be very, very lavish. It's going to be very, very big. It's going to change your life. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. But I'm going on this trip. I'm leaving you in charge. I want y'all to do something with this gift. Sounds a lot like what James is doing by going to Israel and making me preach for the next couple of Sundays, doesn't it? Just kidding. So what we get to see is we get to see this first employee comes up to the master and the master says to the, gives the employee five talents. Five talents. Now something to note about this. You know, we're not talking about, you know, spiritual gifts right here. We're not talking about something, a, person, a, a gift somebody actually has. We're, we're talking about a form of currency here. This is what Jesus is talking about. A talent is a form of currency. And it's a very large form of currency. One talent equals 15 years worth of wages. So think about that. This first guy's getting five talents. That's 75 years worth of wages. That's basically two careers that this master is giving to his, to this servant. It's a lot. And so the next guy, the next servant comes up and, you know, Jesus doesn't give this guy as much, but he still gives him two talents. Still 30 years worth of wages, plenty of wages. And then the third employee comes up, the guy we often feel kind of sorry for, and Jesus only gives him, or the master only gives him one talent. But that's still 15 years' worth of wages. It's still a lot. That's half a career's worth of wages. We're dealing with a lot of money here in this story. And so if you're, if you're one of Jesus' original audience, you're, you're shocked. You're hearing the story and you're saying, why is this master giving these lowly servants all of this money? Like, this is a lot of money. This is a ton of money. Something that, that 
you would have never thought. And so the master's telling his servants, you know, he's saying, I'm leaving. I don't know when I'll be back, but I want you to do something with this. And I assume that by me giving you this gift, you're going to do something with this. And so the first part of this parable is pretty basic. It's pretty basic. But the second half of this parable, like all of Jesus' parables, is when it starts to get really interesting. And so the boss comes back after a set period of time. I don't know how long. It doesn't say how long he was gone. Could have been gone a week. Could have been gone a year. I don't know how long he was gone. But he walks back in and he summons these servants to come, to come back to him. And so we get to see the boss walk in and he says, all right, who did your homework? What'd y'all do? How'd y'all do? And so the first servant walks up. He's got his chest out. He's beaming. He's smiling. He's been looking forward to this guy coming back, to his boss coming back. And he says, boss, God is good. I turned my five talents into 10 talents. Now, what, what do we talk about? Five talents is 75 years worth of wages. He has taken these 75 years worth of wages and turned it into 150 years worth of wages. Now, I'm sure some of you are pretty good with your investments, pretty good with your stock market and what you, what you invest in, but I'm sure none of you are that good. None of you have to, can be that good and turn 75 years of wages into 150 years worth of wages. That is crazy. And so we get to see the second employee come up. And he says, something very, he says something very similar. You know, he says, you know, you, you didn't give me five talents. You gave me two talents. But I went and did the same. I doubled it. I took my two. I turned it into four. And now I've got 60 years worth of wages. You know, the boss man, he says to both of his servants, he says, I am so proud of you. I knew I could trust you. This is awesome. I want to, and it, he doesn't just stop there. He says, I want to partner with you. I want to do more with you. I want to take this and run it with you. I want to inv invite you in with me. I want to invite you into this partnership. And so the third employee, usually even today, the third, when we talk about, tell a joke or tell a story, the third person's usually the punchline, right? And so the third guy walks up, and before the boss can even open up his mouth, this servant is already already talking to him. He's already giving excuses, you know. You know, he's saying, you know, boss, he, he really kind of has a low view of, of the master. You know, he says, you know, I, you reap where you do not sow. You know, he's saying like, you know, boss, like you're kind of a bad dude. I don't really trust you. I don't trust you. And so, you know, he's already making excuses. We, are, we, probably, are, we probably all know somebody that makes a lot of excuses. And, you know, this is that guy. He's making excuses. And so when we think about this, a lot of the times when we look at the story, there's something, especially if you're somebody that pays a lot of attention to economics and just has that brain, I'm not that person. But a lot of the times, and maybe you've thought about this before, but one interesting thing about this is, what did the third servant not do? He didn't lose the money. He didn't lose it. In fact, he, he just brought it back to him. He brought it back to him and said, here you go. It's safe. It's sound. I protected it. It's kind of, kind of surprising. You know, it's not like he lost it. It's not like you give your kid 50 bucks to go to the store and they come back with zero dollars and then you're angry at them. That's not what happens here. You know, the kid goes to the store with $50, comes back, gives the $50 right back. Sounds responsible. If you know somebody, if you've ever been a part of a family unit that has had somebody that was in the Great Depression, you know, a grandmother, a great, a great grandmother, a parent, I don't know, what that looks like, you know that, this, that those people are people that, you know, a nickel and a dime have a lot, have a lot of value to them. 
and nickel and a dime had a lot of value to them. It's just they learned to appreciate it. You know, they didn't have a lot. They learned to appreciate this. And so when you kind of put these things together, it's, it's surprising that the boss's response is one of anger. You know, if you're the other two employees, you're probably sitting here as well thinking, you know, boss, he didn't lose the money. In fact, we made more than enough to cover him. Like, what's, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? And the boss, you know, we get to see him respond. He says, you know, you misunderstood the invitation. You misunderstood the proposition. You misunderstood me. And he actually tells this servant who he gave one talent to, to give it to the guy that now has ten talents. So he, the boss isn't even interested in getting the money back. He's saying, y'all can keep the money that I've given you. And so now this guy has 11 talents. He's got 165 years worth of wages. And the boss says one of the hardest things and harshest things in this section of the parables. He says, depart from me, you wicked and lazy servant. You know, toss him into the darkness. I don't want to see him again. And that's our parable. That's our parable. So I kind of have home field advantage on these parables. You know, I've been thinking about this all week. Um, you know, I don't preach very often, so I've actually probably been thinking about this parable for, for about a month now. Most of you guys are probably hearing this parable. You know, you probably know it. You've probably read it before, but you probably haven't thought about it too much recently. And so I want to condense this into something that is very tangible that you can chew on, and then we're going to offer a very practical way to kind of take this, these teachings of Jesus home this week. So when you read this particular section of Matthew's gospel, you need to understand a few things about Matthew's gospel. First thing, Matthew prides himself in being a Jewish storyteller. Now yes, all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have Jewish aspects to them, but Matthew is especially Jewish. You know, in fact, Matthew, his gospel is divided into five sections, which is really important because when we look at the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, how is it divided? Five sections. We get to see five sections. And so Matthew is, is Jewish even in the way that he structures his storytelling. So when you're reading Matthew's stories, you need to look for clues, and these clues are often found in context. And so here are the clues that Matthew kind of drops in this parable, in this section of the gospel. So the first clue is this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. You know, whenever Jesus is teaching in the, in, the, in the Gospels, it's important to note who Jesus is talking to. It's important to note who he's talking to. For instance, whenever, have you ever noticed that when Jesus is actually talking about hell, he only teaches it to two different crowds of people. He only teaches it to either the disciples or to the Pharisees. You know, he doesn't talk about hell to the broken and destitute. He doesn't go to the broken and destitute and talk about hell. You know, in a way, they're kind of in a hell of their own like, at that point in their life. And so even, even when Jesus is, is speaking to people, he's contextualizing. He's thinking about this. And this is important because when he's telling this parable, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his closest friends, the people that he's traveled with, the people that he's spent the last three years with, the people that he's been mocked by, the people that he has stayed in homes with. He has spent time with these 12 men more than anybody else in his entire ministry. And when we think about this idea of, being, of Jesus speaking to his disciples, this is important to note because if you think about your closest friends, you could probably share things that are a little harder with them than you can with other people. 
You know, one of my best friends in the whole world is Justin McClucky. He's actually a member of our congregation here. Justin was my roommate at OC. We were in club together. We've traveled together. We were in our, each other's weddings. Abby and Justin actually joke that when I married Abby, I was divorcing Justin as my wife to go be with Abby as my wife. So, I mean, that is, that is the extent of our relationship. There are times throughout living together when I come back and Justin's in my ear. I have a picture of him. He's literally in my ear like, like that, and I'm like, like that. And like that was actually going on. Like he's actually yelling at me, actually going on. I always say that Justin is, is my old ball and chain and that he is always there to set me right. And the thing about Justin and I's relationship is, you know, we, we talk to each other in different ways than we'd probably talk to other people in our life. You know, we're able, we've seen each other at our heights. We've seen each other at our lowest. We can speak to each other, share hard things with each other. For those of you that have close friends as well, you, you know that you're, you can share things with other people, with these, with these friends of yours that you won't share with other people. And so Je- that's what Jesus is doing here. You know, he's able to share hard things with these disciples that he can't, or at least he's not going to share with just another average person that he encounters. So that's the first clue. The second clue is this. Jesus has been saying all throughout Matthew, and it's ramping up now, that he is greater than the temple. And this is hard for the American Protestant mind to kind of wrap, wrap your hands around, wrap your brains around. And this is how absolutely crazy it is that, you know, Jesus would not only think internally that he's greater than the temple, but that he's bold enough and has the audacity to externally share it with others. When you go into Jerusalem today, and especially in the first century, you'll see that the city itself is shaped around the temple. It all is centered around the temple. And, you know, the whole structure of Mount Moriah, this, this section of Jerusalem that they're in, the, the whole intent is to drive your eyes towards the temple because the temple is where God lives. The temple is the proof that the Jews, that, that the Jews are the most important people carrying the most important story in the world. And so for Jesus to intentionally say, Throughout the Gospels, as you, you know, he says that he's tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He says that, you know, he's speaking a metaphor, but he's clearly saying and placing himself above the temple. He's trying to get their attention about the unique nature that God has gifted his disciples and the presence of Jesus in their lives. Clue number two. So clue number three. Talent is a metaphor for gift. We kind of talked about this earlier, but it's not your spiritual gifts, and there's other parables about that, but it's a metaphor for those of us who have been given something that we do not deserve, that we did not earn, that we do not deserve. And the last clue is this. Jesus is now at the end of Matthew, and he's very fixated on the end. He's very fixated on the end, the judgment day. It's in this section where he asks, you, know, you want to know what's on the final exam? You know, you visited me in prison. You, you clothed me when I was naked. You, you took care of my, metal, my medical needs. You know, that's where I reside. That's my location. So don't worry about finding me on top of the mountain. I just, if you just want to know where I live, you know, this is what it says in another parable. He's talking about the judgment. He's talking about the end. <clears throat> See, I think the key to understanding this parable could be said like this. It's not first about what you do for God. It's not first about what you do for God, which kind of fits into where we as Christians, I feel like, are at, for a lot of us, are at today. You know, just give me a list. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. It's not what this is about. It's not just about what, what do we do for God. It's not about that. It's first about what we think about, what, about God 
and what we think about what God has given us. Notice the third employee. You know, he obviously doesn't trust the master. He obviously didn't trust him. He he didn't like him. He was afraid of him. You know, he doesn't, he thinks the boss doesn't have his interests in mind. You know, he's afraid of what will happen if, if he loses what he's been given. And so part of what God Part of what Jesus is doing by telling his par- this parable to the disciples is he's, he's telling them that you have to think about what you think God is. And if you think that God is angry, if you think that God is vengeful, if you think that God is just a bunch of negative characteristics, it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because in the end when the judge comes, you know, you're going to say to him, e- before he even has a chance to speak, that you never trusted him. Anyway. But if you're like the first two employees who believe in the master and are excited and blessed by this gift, you know, that becomes your destiny. Let's kind of close out here. Just, if Jesus were saying this another way, it would sound a lot like this. You know, I'm about to go on a long journey. Peter, James, John, Simon, you other guys. Sometimes we get to four of the disciples and we forget the rest of the twelve. You other guys. I wonder if Jesus ever forgot the names of his disciples. It'd be kind of funny if he forgot their names. But, you know, he says this, he says this, he's going on, I'm going on a long journey. I'm going to be with the Father. You know, he he says, I can't explain it. And even if I could explain it in scientific terms, you're not going to get it. But I'm going to be with the Father, but I'm also still going to be here with you on earth in the form of a spirit. And I don't want you to think that this, is, that, this, that this is this endless cycle of meaningless events in human history that's breaking out. Because there's going to be a fixed period of time where I'm going to allow you to continue to live on planet Earth. And at some point I'm going to come back. You know, the day of resurrection, the judgment, all nations, tribes, and civilizations are going to answer to this judge. And when I come back, I just want to know, disciples, if you are willing to risk it all because of the gift that you've been given. You know, that's it. This is not about your salvation. This is about what you do with your life now on planet Earth. This is about what you do now with your life on planet Earth. If you're in me, then your salvation is determined. And if you're in me, then you understand that your salvation is determined. So you're willing to risk it all. Because it could be that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the greatest risk is to never take a risk at all. The greatest risk is to take no risk at all. That could be what Jesus is saying. And so here's the practical homework that I want to give to you guys today. I want you to, and I know we don't typically do this, I want you to take out your cell phones if you don't have it out already. Any of you text yourself or put reminders in your phone about things? I do that. If that's not you, if you're more still old-fashioned and do paper and pen, stick it on the fridge. Go ahead and get a piece of paper or something out And I want you to write these things down. Put it somewhere where you'll see it so that you can remember this. I know that Sunday at 4 o'clock rolls around and a lot of times we forget what we've talked about. So this is what the goal is. is not to forget what this message, what this parable is is all about. So in the life of Jesus, anytime we get to see Jesus, you know, talking and teaching and and risk-taking, when Jesus is taking risks, it always has to do with people. It always has to do with people. Now, Jesus is interested in your career. He's interested in other aspects of your life. But the thing that he's most interested in is how you treat other people, how you connect 
with other people. And here's my proof. Read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, at the, at the beginning of Matthew, it's all about how, you know, how we treat God, how we treat others, and how we treat ourselves. And, you know, that's, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really hard. It's something that's really hard to actually do. And fast forward to the end of Matthew, you know, we get to see Jesus talking to his disciples, these same guys that he just told this parable to. And he's saying, I want you to go, I'm leaving, and I want you to go find all these women, men, children that are open to this message about the kingdom of God. I want you to share it with them. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them. And they're going to go, and they're going to baptize more people, and they're going to teach more people. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, everything begins and ends with human relationships and human connection. That's what it's all about, and that's what it's always been about. It's always been about people. So here's the practical homework this week. One, read the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's one thing y'all should do. Read the Sermon on the Mount. But also, if the church believed that this parable was true, which I hope we do, then the church would welcome taking risks as it relates to the people that God has put into our lives. We wouldn't see them as obstacles, but rather we'd see them as opportunities. You know, church, what I'm saying here is that our Sunday school teachers were we're right. The answer to the puzzle in this, in this parable is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the gift. It took me 25, 30 minutes to tell you that Jesus is the answer. Wow. And so what you're, what, what you're having to do is, what he's saying to his disciples is, you're going to get distracted. You know, you're going to get pulled in all of these different directions. You're going to have all of these different understandings of what it means to be people of God. But don't forget that Christianity comes down to this one basic truth. This one basic truth that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The gift. And all God wants to know is what are you going to do with this gift? Will you take the risk? And so for this practical homework, what I want you to write down, I want you to think about the people in your life and ask yourself if there is a risk opportunity with somebody. Is there a risk opportunity with somebody? Is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there somebody that you need to reach out to? Is there somebody that you need to ask for forgiveness? Is there somebody that you need to reach out to at work that you know has been going through a messy situation you just didn't want to get involved? There's a million ways to do it, but the one common denominator is that, is that it involves people. I think, about, I think about Dale and the ministry that they started all because of an ice storm. They took that risk to bless other people. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know that this was going to turn into 600 groups visiting over the course of this ministry, however many churches that have been planted, however many baptisms, however many people have come to know God. They took the risk. They took the risk. You're not a Jesus-shaped Christian if you're not willing to enter into the messy parts of people's lives. And so I'm going to give you guys 90 seconds. I know we're running a little late on time, but I want to give you all a chance to think about this. And I want you to think about your family circles, your neighborhood circles, your work circles, your school, even your church circle, even your church circle. Can you think of one or two persons that Jesus is calling you to take a risk for this week? And will you trust that God will honor his commitment? And here's the really beautiful thing about this parable. You know, I don't think that the boss would have been upset with the third employee if he had lost it all and failed. Because for Jesus, the kingdom of God, it's not about success or failure. The kingdom of God is about being faithful. 
It's different than winning or losing. So even if it goes terrible for you this week with this person or persons that you decide to take a risk on, it's okay. The point is that you're willing to put yourself out there on behalf of Jesus, on behalf of the kingdom of God in someone else's life. So I'm going to give you all 90 seconds. Awkward silence. Write it down. Text yourself. Set a reminder. Here's who I'm going to connect to this week, and I'm going to do the same with you as well. So take that time, and let's think about these people in our lives that we need to connect with. God, we love you and we thank you for being the gift. We thank you for giving Jesus to us as as the gift. God, as we think about Jesus' teachings in this parable, God, I pray that it changes how we live our lives, especially according just with other people, God. I pray that we're willing to be risk takers to, to show the love of you to everybody in our life and to even the people that are hard to love, God, and that we can show them Step out on your behalf and share the kingdom of God with them. God, I pray that you be with us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning as we're kind of closing out here, go connect with these people. Think about these people. Love these people. Some of you may need to come forward this morning and you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. You want to receive that gift that God has given to us, that gift of Jesus and that gift of love and sacrifice. Others of you may just feel like you need to re- reorient your life to be more of a Jesus-shaped Christian, somebody that loves other people. Whatever it may be, come this morning as we stand.